welcome back to the Book on Fire podcast. Season two is upon us. First, I just wanted to give us, everybody, a little bit of updates here. We, as you all know, probably already, did not actually deliver any episodes to you over the summer. We were busy, as we always are, during the summertime, but uh, herb school is over. The gardens are put to bed, and we are holed up at our house with a wood stove on and ready to read and talk about books again with you guys. Do you have any updates, Dave? Yeah, we really had the best intentions. <laughs> <laughs> the readings that we're going to talk about today, we've had queued up since the spring. We were hoping that we could get some time in over the summer to sneak in an episode or two. But yay, hey, here we are. Uh, it turned out to be more consuming than we thought. And now it's mid-November. As the days grow shorter, our time with you grows longer. <laughs> Right. That's right. So today we're actually going to talk about um, a few essays. And while this is the book on fire, we are not talking about books today. Uh, But we have the links up in the show notes. If you want to go read those before you listen to us talk about them, that is your option. We've got a couple readings um, that we wanted to talk about that are related to the material and just kind of the world that we were in when we were discussing Donna Haraway staying with the trouble uh, last season. And like I said, we read these pieces back in the spring and found that they had a lot of resonances with what we were considering and thinking about um, and encouraged to think about by Haraway's text. And so we're really like starting this season off because this, I guess, is the beginning of season two. We're starting this season off by continuing like following some of the threads from last season if you were with us last season you might remember and so we're still in that zone as we're talking about the stuff that we're going to talk about today and there's i don't want to say two articles that we're talking about because it's really more than two but two different authors and uh the first article that we're going to talk about is called the first article is called the environment is not a system by Tega Brain, who is a artist and scholar, uh, and then and then we're also going to be talking about kind of a cluster of texts by Stephanie Wakefield around the Anthropocene's back loop, and so links to all of the stuff that we're going to talk about today are in the notes, and if you want to, if you want to be totally up to speed mm-hmm. with what we're about to talk about. This might be a time when you might want to stop it right here or pause it right here and take the time and go and read over those articles and then come back and you'll, you'll be, you'll know exactly what we're talking about as we're talking, but you don't need to like we do on the book on fire here. Uh, we also aim to, to, um, kind of encapsulate the main themes of the text as we're talking about it and talk about what, you know, what we think is interesting about it and what are the big takeaways from it. Uh, so that's what we're about to do. We'll take some time doing that. And then at the end of today's episode, we will announce the next full book that we're planning to engage with here on the book on fire. We, yeah, we have a plan. So first we're going to talk about the essay, The Environment is Not a System by Tiga Brain and Ortega. I actually don't know how to say their name. 
But first of all, what a provocative title. The environment is not a system. That's definitely what drew me in, and I know that's what drew Dave in to read this piece to begin with. Um, and I guess before we get into the meat of that article, what could this title be referring to? <laughs> right. Why would somebody want to say, come out and say to the world, the environment is not a system? Right? I think, yeah, you have ideas about that? Yeah. The title foretells part of what this pieces getting into, which is the reference here, the the most obvious reference here is the word ecosystem, Mm -hmm. right? Which has the word system in it, right? And so we're very, very used to talking about, you know, whole conglomerations, uh, whether they're in the ocean, whether they're on mountainsides, whether they're in deserts, wherever they are, of organisms as comprising a system, an ecosystem. I would actually even argue that uh, in a lot of the world of the worlds of ecology and science, in reaction to the fragmented studies that come with Western approaches to study of nature, mm-hmm. uh, that systems thinking around the environment and ecology is actually touted as the most comp- complex and the most advanced way to think about ecology currently. And that when we talk about systems thinking, it's supposed to imply like more complexity and, and having a more advanced way of looking at the world. Well, yeah, the, the part of what the article here gets into is, is how the whole, the science of ecology evolved as a study of systems. Mm -hmm. You know, there was never a science of ecology before. Oh yeah. Before systems thinking. They were born at the same time, mm-hmm. and they had very close coevolutionary pathways. You know, so systems thinking is, or systems uh, theory, um, complex systems. Not all systems are complex, but systems theory is like maybe that takes a little bit of explaining, right? Like, what is a system? You know, uh, you can have a bunch of people in a room interacting with one another, but do they form a system? Mm-hmm. You know, a system, it implies coordination between all the parts, mm-hmm. you know, towards a goal or goals. Or there's the possibility of a purpose. I would say purpose, yeah. You know, within a system. You know? And so, yeah, like a group of people in a room at like a party or something, it might be harder to find the system aspect of that congregation of people mm-hmm. than the same group of people... At a factory. At an office <laughs> yeah. or a factory, mm-hmm. right? Where everyone has a role mm-hmm. and the role is a part to play right. in this larger system that's producing something or accomplishing some task or right. doing something like that, right? So so to conceive of something as a system implies like organization of parts mm-hmm. where there's like cause and effect relationships possibly you know, the output of one thing feeds into the next thing. And then maybe this is all towards some kind of greater purpose. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this is just a way to introduce what it means to think about a system and Mm -hmm. what it means to think about what it means to think about the environment Mm -hmm. as a system. In ecology, we take this to a certain extent for granted. Definitely. Because we just have this word ecosystem and it's like, and we, we can very easily look out and imagine how all of these different parts are connected, right? Mm-hmm. Because 
there's connections and some of the connections seem functional mm-hmm. where like the trees in the temperate forest drop their leaves which replenish the soil and feed the fungi and the microorganism in the, in the soil so we're like oh the trees are feeding the fungi and also i think it's important to recognize that the systems approach of ecology has been helpful Mm-hmm. in translating the complexity of the web of life to people who had somewhat lost that connection and awareness so that they would be able to understand why one seemingly insignificant part yeah. of a community might actually be very important and not dispensable. Yeah. So as far as like people who are working to protect the more-than-human world through policy creation or through putting laws through like the Endangered Species Act, something like that, like actually being able to point to science that shows that each part is really important mm-hmm. in what they would call the ecosystem, mm-hmm. then has been useful in, in making people care about yeah. the different components in the way that they talk about it yeah. of the system. Yeah. But there is a side effect of that way of thinking. Yeah. So why would someone come along and write a piece called The Environment is Not a System. <laughs> the occasion for the writing of this piece was the announcement by Microsoft's chief environmental scientist that Microsoft's AI capacity, artificial intelligence capacity, was going to be offered into the hands of those who are trying to, quote, monitor, model, and manage the Earth's natural systems. Monitor, model, and manage the Earth's natural systems. So this is the can of worms. You can get a little bit more of a sense of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. What's going on here is that, like, high-tech artificial intelligence wizards imagine that massive computational ability can be like entered into the quest to solve the environmental problems that are happening on earth. Mm-hmm. So the piece is written partially in response to just this whole idea, you know, mm-hmm. that like we can create these massively smart computers that we can feed data into from the environment, like all these sensors and rainfall tracking stuff from all around the globe and like ocean currents and species data and like all this stuff and we can feed them into the computers and that the computers can come up with a better understanding than we have already of how all this stuff is interlinked so that we can find like leverage points in that that can do good and they might instead of doing harm possibly be able to conceive of solutions that we can't even imagine because the capacity for this tech approach or for the computer mind would be able to create scenarios and predictions that we can't even conceive of, right? So, like, there's actually more hope for some people in this approach. Oh, yeah, for sure. And there's lots of different critiques of machine learning, and the article gets into that to a certain extent. But the part that I think is most interesting to us here mm-hmm. is the underlying assumptions, you know, not just not just the fact that, like, AIs have shown to exhibit the same racial biases as, you The know, developers of them. <laughs> yeah, as the developers of AIs, and when it, AIs have been used in the justice system or whatever that they've like reproduced the same biases as the you know human stewards of the justice system whatever that's mentioned in here but the deeper sort of question that's asked by the article is 
what does it mean, right, to conceive of these entities, like the whole biosphere, as a system? Mm -hmm. And like one of the implications of it is that it implies the possibility of control. Right. And part of what Tigger Brain points out in this article is that ecology, like I was saying, ecology evolved alongside mm -hmm. systems thinking in general and specifically cybernetics. Mm-hmm which is the study of nonlinear control systems. Right. Cybernetics is a word that has like gotten other meanings kind of in the modern world. And some people use it to just mean kind of computers or the digital world or something. Mm -hmm. But the old going back to the 1930s definition of cybernetics is how to like exercise control over complex and nonlinear systems. Mm -hmm. And its major applications have been in the science of governance, like governing people governments and corporations how can we control what people are doing control people's lives you know and so part of what she's doing here is evoking this sort of ugly history mm -hmm. of control yeah but i think like i didn't go into reading this article thinking that ais might have the answer <laughs> for us you know and so that was like it wasn't hard to convince me that right. microsoft wasn't on the right track you know uh, but the main thing that really like got to me in this article, and I think the main reason why I'm excited to talk about it here, is the down-deep questioning of the assumption that connections between organisms in ecologies are functional mm -hmm. or operational, and that like add up to something that seems purposeful, because that's part of what's being questioned here. Mm -hmm. And I make those assumptions all the time. You know, I'm involved in permaculture. Permaculture makes use of a functional understanding of what's going on in ecosystems. Mm -hmm. It's common for us to express things that we witness going on in the ecologies around us as like that they have a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, if you clear cut a forest, then there's the chance that the soil that's been created is going to erode and be lost. And so quick to establish pioneer species get going in the cleared ground really quickly to help stabilize the topsoil so that erosion is less. And so now I'm doing that thing. I'm saying that there's a reason, mm -hmm. right? That there's a purpose. A motivation. That there's a purpose. motivation. Yeah. So what's interesting, I'm assuming kind of that there's a purpose, like that there's a system that's happening. There's a system by which organisms kind of conspire and work together. Yeah, I was going to say works together. Like, I think we often use that language where we're like, the members of the forest work together to keep in water mm -hmm. and store nutrients mm -hmm. and build soil. Mm -hmm. And accumulate biomass. And accumulate and biomass. And then we and say accumulate that, connections. that they work together to do that. And so I think it's just a sort of like a manner of speech, but we kind of mean it literally too. We're yeah. literally... I think I do, <laughs> you know, and, but I'm speaking the language of emergence, right? which is the language that allows for properties to be expressed by larger systems, here I go, <laughs> of individual units mm -hmm. that are not necessarily the motivation of each part. So in that way, this article really hit home, mm -hmm. you know, because it was like inviting me to sort of question Right. the assumptions that we make about ecology. But yeah, and Tega Brain, the author here, has 
has some of her own ideas about what we could do to break the habit of thinking about nature as being comprised of functional systems. Yeah, it seems like in this part, she's drawing really heavily from Anna Singh's work in The Mushroom at the End of the World, the subtitle of which is On the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins. In that book, Singh introduces this idea of looking at the relations between different elements of what others would call an ecosystem as an assemblage. And the reason she likes the word assemblage is because it allows for a more open-ended connection between different agents within the group Mm -hmm. and allows the different parts to maybe be at cross-purposes or maybe not to have uh, mutual interest in mind or to even consider each other. It allows for there just to be open-ended outcomes, open-ended relations, and less of a almost teleological effect that are in built into the systems thinking mm-hmm. where it's like, there's this point and all the parts are working towards that point. Also, I think that the move towards using the word assemblage or the concept of the assemblage is also, it, it precludes any notion that we can control or engineer a grouping. Uh-huh. Now we can work within an assemblage as part of the assemblage. And that's where we can maybe get back to what you're talking about within permaculture, which is by observing the parts in an assemblage, and seeing what how what effects certain parts have with each other, you can work within it mm-hmm. and become entangled within the assemblage yourself mm-hmm. to create change. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. with the awareness that, that there are some unknowns and unknowable parts that you're going to understand better through observation and participation instead of from a, a distance. Yeah. Yeah, right. Being part of the assemblage or being part of the system. Anna Singh kind of gets us part of the way there, where she's like, we need to practice the arts of noticing. We need to do these kind of ethnographies of nature that are like these place-based studies that are open-ended and don't assume the functionality of things, but allow us to notice what's emerging. But for me, part of the solution to these quandaries is in another concept that I know that Donna Haraway is really into, which is called situated knowledge, which means that we develop our knowledge from a position within entangled systems, right? Or maybe not systems, but assemblages. You know, and permaculture uses this because it's like the human element is an element in a biological sphere. And you can have models and you can have theories like that if I do this, it's going to speed up the creation of topsoil, you know, and then you get to like experiment and see if that's actually what happens, mm-hmm. right? Because this text that we're talking about today, it, it doesn't really approach the role of the participant learner. And that type of situated knowledge that comes from participation and experimentation mm-hmm. I think, solves some of the problems that Tega is bringing up with this piece. Because it's the opposite of the thing that she's critiquing, which is um, trying to get kind of this God's eye view of the entire system Mm -hmm. by modeling it inside a computer brain or something, and then looking at it like kind of from the outside. Right. Yeah, it actually reminds me of something I think about a lot in relation to um, our lives. Dave and I live on land that we steward and tend and have been working with for 
going on 20 years. Almost 20 years, but yeah. like pretty solid living here full time all year for 11 years. Mm-hmm. And people often come out here and they just want to see what we build and what we've done and ask questions around how we do what we do, ask about the changes that we've made, which are important. But I think maybe no one has ever asked me, or you probably, like how the land has changed us. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about how even in everyday life, when humans are talking to each other in our culture, often we think more about ourselves as sort of managing the assemblages that we're part of, as managing the systems that we're a part of, instead of being another component of these groupings or gatherings that are also being infected and affected and impacted by what's going on. And I could talk for a really long time about the way I've been changed by the land and by living here. Mm-hmm. But that's not something most folks want to hear about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I think that what I see as a counter to the distant form of systems thinking is acknowledging yourself as part of the group, getting in it, working within it, and seeing how you shift as well as what's shifted around you by your participation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think a lot of the main point here is that there's limits to what we could know that not all entanglements make sense. Mm -hmm. There's leakages, there's strange encounters, and then there's also transformation through encounter, which is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so, I don't know. Do we want to say anything more about that text? It's definitely worth reading, and I think that if you study ecology, even as an enthusiast and not a professional, and if you use the word ecosystem <laughs> um, <laughs> in your speech, then then the piece will like give you something to think about. Um, yeah, so to move on to the next thing, what I was saying about situated knowledge and participation and experimentation being part of maybe one possible solution to these traps makes a nice segue Mm -hmm. into what we're going to talk about next. And what we're talking about next, we wanted to talk about a few articles by... Stephanie Wakefield, who's uh, a scholar who I think right now is working at FIU Florida International University down in Miami, where I grew up. And the articles that we are reading is, there's an article that she wrote for the Brooklyn Rail, and it's called Field Notes from the Anthropocene, Living in the Back Loop. And then there's another article that appeared in another journal, um, that one is called Dreaming the Back Loop, and then on academic article for a um, scholarly journal of resilience called resilience uh, called inhabiting the Anthropocene back loop. So all three of those are linked and we might not be always clear about which one we're talking about, but basically all of these articles are on a theme, (laughs) right? I want to add also that we're not going to talk a lot about dreaming the back loop, but it's really wonderful, but draws heavily from the new Blade Runner movie that came out. Last couple year? of years ago, couple yeah, years ago. right. 
Um, and if you have seen that, you should definitely read it. It's a really interesting, powerful reading of that movie. And if you haven't seen it, I suggest that you see it and then read that essay because um, I think it's really powerful together, the two. Yeah, it, it's really beautifully written. Both the one for the Brooklyn Rail and the Dreaming the Back Loop are both written for like popular audiences more mm-hmm. instead of academic audiences. And they're both really well written and just like wonderful. And the academic one is also totally worth your time too. So if you want to go and read those, do. So all three of them center around this concept from ecology called the back loop. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about what that is? The back loop is a feature of the of what's called the adaptive cycle. So I'm going to put a diagram of the adaptive cycle uh, in the show notes. So maybe you have seen this already, or if not, you can look at it there. It's also in these articles that we're citing. And uh, so basically, there's a well-known ecologist named Buzz Holling, C.S. Holling, who developed, I can't remember when, uh, but it's been maybe a couple decades now, he developed this idea of the adaptive cycle by which ecosystems cyclically change. And it's a framework to understand the non-permanence of ecological assemblages or ecosystems that was a revision from an older idea that all ecosystems just kind of tended towards this climax state, the forest a temperate forest would maybe be a really common example of disturbance or something. And then kind of like we were talking about, you know, the pioneers come in and like all this stuff, but then longer lived trees get established. And then eventually it grows into like a full canopy forest. And then that's the climax. And that's the steady state. That's what the ecosystems just want to reach and then hold there. Hauling introduced this idea that kind of made the disturbances part of the normal, you know, mm-hmm. not like something that's outside the system that kind of throws the nice academic model awry, but actually incorporates disturbance and change into a cyclical dynamic change within the environment that's always happening. It's always happening and it's actually necessary mm-hmm. for certain elements of the system <laughs> to to function because what ecologists have found now over time that, well, people were observing this for a long time around while trying to chart the climax system theory, Mm -hmm. but that in real life, it seemed like there was a lot of observation of systems kind of going into entropy when they were in a climax state for very long, for too long. And so there would be a way that it actually didn't hold its, what was considered its idealized optimal state Mm -hmm. um, if left alone. And actually these systems needed disturbance to sort of reorganize and have more access to nutrients and have um, that Mm -hmm. built into them. They needed disturbance to happen or they would go into entropy. Right. Um, Yeah. Or the entropy would kind of, lead into mm-hmm. what we're about to describe, which is right. called the back loop. Right. And so, yeah, there's an element where it's either not fully understood or maybe I just haven't read enough to understand it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like where the ecosystem builds up into this so-called climax state. And even though the climax state is thought to be very highly evolved mm-hmm. and advanced and 
and very resilient because there's lots of redundant functional connections within the ecosystem. It was observed, yeah, which is like the thing that you're saying is that that resilience erodes somewhat over time. Mm -hmm. And the climax state can actually become what they call brittle, mm -hmm. which means like it's like the opposite of resilient almost, right? right? Uh, because it becomes sort of frozen in a state and unavailable to change, it's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And then it's vulnerable to what can be like all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But basically the idea is it becomes vulnerable. And then so at some point, the weakness of this apparently climactic state is going to be revealed and the system will start to come apart. And it sends the system into a phase called the release phase. So if you're looking at this diagram that I'm going to put in the show notes, the diagram looks like a figure eight. It looks sort of a Mobius strip. It's a Mobius strip kind of. It looks like an infinity sign, right? So it's like two loops and one's on the right side and one's on the left side. And so the adaptive cycle, I mean, this is hard to describe just in words, but the adaptive cycle is at the low end, like less accomplished, well-organized part of the scale there's like a bunch of pieces, there's a bunch of possibility, there's a bunch of potential organisms that could come into more productive relationships with each other, and then they start to, and it builds up, and the ecosystem becomes, you know, more interlinked, and more kind of symbiotic in fractal ways, and then, like we're saying, it builds up into this like so-called climax state, but then that's not a steady state. Actually, eventually it tips over and that's going down into one of the loops. And then there's this whole thing called the back loop. And the back loop is where connections start to come apart. Energy and resources are kind of freed up because instead of being bound into these like very specific relationships where like all of the bird poop has to get sucked up by these very particular fungal organisms in the soil because that's the relationship that's been existing for 500 years and then maybe that's not quite happening so much anymore so the bird poop is free to be used in some other way or whatever you know right this would be the ecological way of talking about this so in the back loop things are coming apart which is opens up a creative time right because things are less fixed in these certain old long-standing relationships and the elements in the system are kind of free to like reconnect in new ways or make new relationships or something or to rearrange themselves in a different way. Um, and then as the system comes apart, then it, it approaches that state that I started with at the beginning again, where there's a lot of elements that are maybe not very functionally connected in the way that a climax state is, but then it starts to build an identity as the connections start to happen. And then it builds back up to a more of like a climax state again. And that's a cycle. So the back loop is the release phase where things come apart and get rearranged and reconfigured. And then it can build up again into a more fixed and steady state. But then eventually it tips over into the back loop again. And that is infinite. And that is the adaptive cycle. Right. So that's Holling's idea. Um, and the back loop is a very fertile time. It's a time when when there's also a lot of unknowns, like how will things get reorganized? Um, a lot of energy is let loose. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's it can be a time of potential mm -hmm. that has been unleashed because shit has fallen apart. 
Definitely, definitely. In fact, potential is one of the axes of the diagram here of the adaptive cycle itself. Definitely take a look, you know, just to hear us talk about it is not, maybe not enough. Um, definitely take a look at the diagram of the adaptive cycle, the cool Mobius strip. There's more to it, but it's kind of a simple idea that explains, you know, the non-permanence of systems. And also, it helps because part of what you realize when you start to think about how much the climax model of secession held sway is that in human society, especially under this current system of domination of Western European culture, we have this myth of progress that everything is going along in a way where things are getting better in society, and we project that onto other life forms and ecosystems. So what it looks like now that we know that it was sort of a flawed framework is that we were projecting this idea of progress with an ultimate goal and apotheosis at the end on plant communities and plant and animal communities. And that we thought that or ecologists were telling people that things went in a very linear route till they hit an apex. Mm -hmm. right. And, the actuality is that there is this more like ebb and flow that is built in and, and that life mm. and biology works in a much more cyclical fashion and not a linear yeah. fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And what you just said is the perfect segue into where she's taking this, right? Because she's using a concept from ecology, but she is employing it here, not strictly in the realm of ecology. She's talking about the Anthropocene. And she's talking about basically our human reality in the Anthropocene. What Stephanie Wakefield is doing is she's saying, she's basically saying, let's take this adaptive cycle idea and apply it to what we're going through right now. And that maybe a good way to think about this is that we are entering the back loop or we're, or we've been in it. We're probably already in it, but it might be near to the beginning phases of really diving into this back loop. And so our political systems, our cultural systems, economic, all of this stuff, there's been this like Western hegemonic dominant, you know, capitalistic, the state that has like grown stronger and stronger, pulled more stuff into its orbit, created all of these functional connections that served the system that it was creating of like moving resource flows around, organizing people in a certain way, all of this. And, you know, we can talk about all the whys and hows and stuff, but that system, it's like at the end of its peak, you know, mm -hmm. it may be peaked and now it's about to come apart. It's well, it's hitting its limitations. I mean, yeah. we're not going to go into all of the reasons why, but yeah. it's, it's not working for a host of reasons. Yeah, a lot. It's hitting its limitations. One of them being resource scarcity mm -hmm. and... There's a lot, <laughs> but you can see evidence of the abuse fact abuse of natural systems, abuse and, of others yeah. of the systems. And what I like about Wakefield's approach is that it includes humans and society into nature. Yeah, because we are also going through this adaptive cycle, right? And we as a society are not separate and isolated. We are part of the systems that this society is destroying, mm -hmm. and therefore we are subject to those cycles as well. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And you can see this right now, currently, all over the world. There are people rising up against various regimes. There are people standing up because of scarcity, because of the acknowledgement that the system is falling apart and not serving them. Oh, yeah. If it ever did, 
it's just become increasingly impossible to ignore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to talk about things coming apart. Right. You know, really. Um, what you said, it made me think of, as an aside, I think that we should mention that that uh, Holling's adaptive cycle has already been used plenty mm-hmm. to describe systems that are not strictly ecological. ecological. Holling himself, I think, has done some work around corporations even hmm. go through this adaptive cycle of like growth and the release phase and a reorganization phase and then like another big growth phase that leads to a breakdown and a release phase and people have used it to describe personal growth as well mm-hmm. individuals going through periods of like steady growth and putting things together and then something happens and it all has mm-hmm. to kind of come apart mm-hmm. so you can reinvent some aspect of yourself and grow again or whatever so uh so yeah the adaptive cycle has proved to be a framework that people have found useful in not just studying natural ecosystems, right? And so here we have it again in this really big picture way because Stephanie Wakefield is, you know, she's not just talk, she's not just talking about culture and mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. She's talking about the whole thing because the Anthropocene involves all of climate change and sea level rise and all of this stuff. In fact, a lot of her very specific work that she's doing on the ground as an academic is talking about how coastal cities are adapting to sea level rise um, and what kind of tactics they're proposing and using to accommodate the new realities of mm-hmm. the Anthropocene. I actually learned a lot about that from these articles. I didn't understand what places like Miami were doing mm-hmm. um, and New York too, actually New York city yeah. um, to look to the future And I have to say, it's a little disturbing and short-sighted in some ways. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But what what is called resilience in this scenario, so as herbalists, we use resilience a lot of different ways that have to do with personal response to stress more. We're not using resilience in that way here. So those of you that are healers or... um, health practitioners, like, understand, or even social workers, we're not talking about resilience in that way here. We're talking about resilience as the move of municipalities, states, nations, um, the work that they're trying to do in the face of climate chaos and climate, climate catastrophe. But generally, it's about attempting to keep the status quo as intact as possible, no matter what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I should say that there are resonances between resilience as we talk about it with like personal trauma resilience and things like that and the kind of resilience that she's studying because so yeah the academic article that we link to is especially a critique of the discourse around climate resilience Mm -hmm. and human systems resilience within the anthropocene the definition of resilience is the ability of an entity to experience stressors and still not be fundamentally changed or broken down by them Mm-hmm. So it's right. like you feel the pressure, you feel the stress, but then you can bounce back from it. Mm-hmm. And the entity r- retains its essential identity mm-hmm. and capacities. Right. You know, so as humans, we sometimes want to build our resilience to stress because we want to be able to like weather the stressors and still kind of come back to our familiar shape. Mm-hmm. You know. And what Wakefield is critiquing here is basically the same idea that people are applying to these world systems mm-hmm. that we're a part of. And they use the back loop idea. 
they actually, the resilience thinkers that she's critiquing are familiar with Holling's adaptive cycle, and they're like, okay, we're going to go, it looks like this world system is going into this back loop of release and reorganization, and their goal is to maximize resilience mm-hmm. to the ravages of the back loop in the sense of like, can we preserve, like you were saying, the status quo? Can we preserve the essential identity of this world system mm-hmm. through this back loop transformation so that when we like come out on the other side, there's going to have been a lot of stress and there's going to be some changes and but we can still have our economic and political structures intact. basically intact mm-hmm. at the end. So there is that idea of like the system not losing its identity. Right. But what Stephanie Wakefield is here to say is maybe we should embrace the back loop more fully and not approach it from a place of fear. Or also acknowledge that if the systems are breaking down this is an opportunity to make to maybe do something different since these clearly are not working. Yeah, she's very critical of this discourse, which I mean is really common not just from government leaders and stuff, but from all kinds of people. That the back loop is something to endure. Mm-hmm. It's just like board up the windows and hold on to your loved ones, and hopefully we can like ride this out and and come out kind of safe on the other end Mm. it's scary there's going to be a lot of loss there's going to be a lot of hard times you know there's going to be a lot of experiments at survival and persistence and flourishing and thriving that are not going to work out but what wakefield is here to remind us of is that this is also the stage of agency and experimentation Mm. and building new things Mm -hmm. with what's here and is going to start kind of coming undone a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when something comes undone and comes unlinked from its role in service to the international economy or something, then maybe it can like, we can pull it into a different orbit, mm-hmm. you know, to where it can be more useful to us on the ground or people or something, you know, like th- this is some of the hopefulness in there mm-hmm. because the ecological back loop is the time when elements actually become more free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that um, part of what stood out for me too in this work is that Wakefield is really good about looking at the way that discourse around the Anthropocene has an incredible amount of species guilt that mm-hmm. comes along. And I know that I talked about this when we were talking about staying with the trouble as well, but I'm going to bring it up again here the very like Christian idea that humans are inherently bad and that it is in our nature to destroy Mm -hmm. and that part of being human is to be disconnected from the rest of life and to wreak havoc there. Yeah. And she brings up the Promethean myth Yes. Here and that part's pretty exciting to me because I uh, I love the stories of those gods and deities and beings who who gave knowledge to humans that made us human, but that 
it's usually read as somewhat of a double-edged sword. Like, it's good that we are self-conscious and aware and have eaten from the tree of knowledge, but it is also makes us separate in some way. And mm-hmm. most human cultures have stories about how we're separate and what we need to do to actually reach the potential of who we are, given that power. Mm-hmm. And in some cultures, that power as is seen as more negative than others. And mm-hmm. in the... All of the cultures that are influenced heavily by the Edenic myth of creation with the serpent sharing that knowledge with us and encouraging us to eat of the tree of knowledge to become as of gods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all of us that have been subject to that story and the specific interpretation that means that was sin rather than the interpretation that means we are also capable of divinity. Um, if we take that story to heart and the way that our culture has, it, it pairs very well with this idea that humans, because of consciousness, are capable of destruction. And not only that, but are not capable of living in good relation with who, with all, the, all of the rest of life. What's interesting here is that there's two types of Promethean interpretations of our current moment. And one of them is that we are actually... We can do no other than to destroy what's around us. The other side is... Or, like, we are guilty of this, like, prideful... Oh, yeah, hubris. ...rising above yes. nature to sort of use our tools and right. and act as, as if a god. Right. Like we're gods or whatever, and that that's, like, pride goeth before a fall. And that yeah. what is happening in the glo- on the global level is punishment yeah. for those the use of those tools. Right, right. And this interpretation conflates humans with a system of domination that also dominates us, which I've also talked about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flip side of that is the Promethean concept of we can get ourselves out of anything. And that ties into the brain article, which is that we just have to engineer a solution out of this. We have the power. We can do that. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the middle is the ground that I would like to inhabit and to think <laughs> of, which is that, yes... We are conscious beings, so are a lot of other creatures, mm-hmm. and I'm an animist, so so is the rest of what's around us. Mm-hmm. But there is something about humans that makes us able to manipulate our environments and makes us able to participate in the community of life in a way that it's different. Instead of seeing that as a curse, seeing that as a gift... And without the total hubris, that is, we can engineer anything and we can figure our way out of this, definitely. Acknowledging that within the mystery of what we're inhabiting right now here in the back loop, we can actually use those tools, those gifts given to us by Prometheus, by the serpent, by the tree of knowledge, Mm -hmm. uh, to actually figure out a way to live in right relation and to create a world that is less destructive Mm-hmm. that is less harmful mm-hmm. to everyone in it, including us as humans. Right. Yeah, the Promethean myth means we have choices. Right. It means we have agency. It means that there's a lot of options available to us as far as like what we're going to build, what we're going to make, where we can live. We have a lot of capacity. And because we have fire, just to take it literally, you know, we can live in all these different climates all around the globe and all this stuff. And what that also says is that we can build a new reality. We can build new systems. We can build new ways of being. Yeah. So I'm glad that you talked about that because I thought that that part was really good. 
the bias against seeing the Promethean gift as a curse, really, Mm -hmm. when really it also represents our way out or our way forward. I think it's, yeah, like I think that the adaptive cycle in the back loop is a is a nice framework for thinking about the stresses and the uncertainties of our time. Mm -hmm. Some of the early signs that she talks about that we're in this back loop is not just like ecological connections kind of coming apart and species extinctions and all of this stuff, but also this post-truth world that we live in and just how people seem to be incapable of making sense of the world anymore. That's an early sign. It's mm-hmm. like, wait, things are unfamiliar, so it's changing, you know. And what I'm interested in is, uh, I mean, I'm interested in this as a framework, but also part of what the back loop promises is that resources, and that word used broadly, is that resources are freed up mm-hmm. to be available for new purposes. That's what it's supposed to be all about. Mm-hmm. Because instead of like everything necessarily being locked into this very controlled capitalist, you know, way of generating wealth for certain people and economic activity and all of this stuff that cultural resources, ideas, physical material resources are going to progressively get like unlocked from their habitual uses by capitalism, by the system, whatever. And there will be an ability to sort of reconfigure that. And I'm ready for that. Mm-hmm. You know, because right. um, that's kind of part of what, when I'm reading this and I'm like, OK, I like this idea and I want to approach the future um, from a place of agency. You mm-hmm. know, And I, I love the work that she's doing here, which is it's not doing anybody any good to just portray ourselves as victims of this. You know, that like this is our chance. This is our chance mm-hmm. to have some effect on how the system comes apart, for mm-hmm. one thing, but but also what emerges from what the reconfiguration fr- after, will look like as it turns through that left hand side of the adaptive cycle loop and builds towards a new stability. This is our chance, and and so one thing to watch out for is like what are the resources that are getting freed up, right. you know? Because right now it's not exactly obvious to me. I mean, I'm not feeling like there's a lot of resources that I can just get access to now that I wasn't able to get before. And I don't mean me. By me, I mean like us or the people that I work with and stuff. One that what has become more apparent is the openings. Yeah. The openings seem more obvious than the resource freeing to me. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, I think I see that. And I just want to add. And that's still like an early sign, I think. Yes. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I just wanted to add, this is something we talked about the other day, so feel free to pipe in about it, but I, um, it helps me to think about this as a moment and an opportunity, a rupture, as some would say, because, you know, there's some things that are really hard about the back loop, and it's that it's not just the systems of governance and domination that are collapsing. Right. There's a lot collapsing. There are so many species going extinct every day. And so for those of us that are really connected um, and who observe life around us a lot and see the different changes and the patterns and see what's happening to various species of trees, you know, the ash trees, for instance, right now is are taking a pretty big hit and it's heartbreaking in a way that affects all kinds of people and animals and the systems, the plants around them as well. The, there's things about the back loop that are heartbreaking. And that we're in a pretty constant process of grief about. But 
what we can easily say is that if there was not an actual ecological crisis, if there was not a limitation to resources for the system to continue to extract and devour in the world, then there might not be this opportunity opening up. We might have a better chance of stopping the destruction and stopping the mm-hmm. all-consuming maw of the machine yeah. from devouring the rest of life if there was not this back loop collapse happening. Yeah. You know, and so to think of it as a reconfiguration rather than a collapse, I guess is important. And I should not use that word. Yeah. But that a rearrangement. <laughs> the rearrangement that's happening does have a lot of destruction happening within it. But was there not an actual impact on the rest of the systems, which there has to be because everything's connected, then we may not have the opportunities that we have right now to have a say in the reconfiguration. Yeah. Um, but I have to yeah. be able to hold both of those. Yeah. The grief for what is being eaten by the in the back loop that did, had nothing to do with the creation of the systems of domination. And I include in that not only life forms of plants and animals, but also whole ways of life that are connected. And whole that, that, that human life humans ways, have established. Human life ways mm-hmm. around the world are also being eaten up by the machine within the back loop. Yeah. And that is also really heartbreaking. So to not just center the more than human world when I talk about the loss and the destruction, but to also acknowledge all of the indigenous lifeways around the world that are being eaten right now and the ones that have already been eaten. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. And it reminds me of a sentence in here that says, in its dedication to staying out of the back loop, resilience forwards a disabling fiction whereby human survival in the Anthropocene is tethered to the maintenance of existing economic, social, and political relations. Mm-hmm. You know, and she, so she's basically saying the leaders are telling you climate change, the world is in crisis, all this stuff is really scary and going to change. And our survival as a species is going to be contingent on whether we can preserve our existing economic, social, and political institutions through this hard time. Mm-hmm. And Stephanie Wayfield is, you know, she's kind of saying, maybe our survival does not depend on that. Mm-hmm. In fact, maybe this would be a good time to change those systems. Right. But also what we're saying, too and she doesn't quite say in here or whatever, is that because those economic and political systems are responsible for so much destruction, Mm -hmm. that if they became untethered now, like they are exactly what is not to save Mm -hmm. through this. Because if they came apart now and allowed us to reconfigure, you know, there's lots of different ways that existing economic and political systems could be reconfigured and they're not all good, mm-hmm. but it provides the possibility that the pressure that's being put on the environment and indigenous people around the world, like all people around the world, maybe those pressures could be released somewhat mm-hmm. if the economic and political systems are allowed to fall apart a bit. And possibly we could do better than survive. Exactly. We could create a world in which more of us are able to thrive. Exactly. And I mean all of life, not just humans. Yes. But I want to put a point here, and it's just that in order to do that, we need to make sure we bring as many people as possible with us to that side. And do what it takes to create, do what it takes to meet the needs of people, of all kinds of people. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of folks whose lives, very lives, depend upon certain things that are made within the current regime. And so we need to just figure out how we're going to acknowledge that and work on that, too. 
Yeah, there's a lot of challenges because um, yeah, insulin is always the thing I think of first. But <laughs> insulin, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but there's more. But I just want to say that within this like hopeful thing, where I'm like, we could have thrive. I want to just make sure we're not leaving people behind. Right, right. We're working on that. On insulin. <laughs> I follow a Twitter account called Open Source Insulin. Oh, cool. Which is, I mean, I don't, I'm not super familiar with what they're doing, but it's a group of people who are working on mm-hmm. what, exactly what it sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, tr- trying to get access to insulin as a medicine of the people. Right. You know, something that we don't have to go through these chains of command in order to be able to obtain. It's thousands of dollars a month or whatever. Yeah. charging people right you now. Know, so... And so we need more of that. We need, what yep. are, what are the holes? What do we need to actually like be able to tap into to what should we, what, what is at stake and scary about the system falling apart and yeah. how can we make it be less scary because the rest of life depends on it really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people are adaptive and people are resilient and people are creative and we have that going for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think after reading this Wakefield stuff and some other things that I've been thinking, I kind of resolved myself to. I don't want to talk about the future anymore without emphasizing the agency that we all have within it. Otherwise, we are disabling the very tools and creativity that we are going to need to rely on. And just to draw it back to the environment from a system, part of what I see too is that one of the ways that we have been kind of broken by the overculture mm-hmm. is by having a deep distrust of the unknown mm-hmm. and of mystery mm-hmm. and what is occluded and moving into the back loop with any sort of feeling of agency means some sort level of acceptance of the unknown and some sort of acceptance of darkness and mystery yeah. And I think that our culture has told us that we are only safe when we know what's going to happen and when we are feeling in control of our environment. And that hubris is part of what got us into this. And mm-hmm. I think it's important that we learn to embrace not knowing what's going to happen and being adaptive in the face of whatever does. I hope maybe you can link to your sun medicine, moon medicine essay here, I think that would be helpful, but um, Dave had sort of draws on a framework of thinking of the world as divided up into solar and lunar elements, and I think about that a lot here, and so those of you that study tarot, um, we can think about the moon card and embracing that, mm-hmm. uh, all of the story and mystery within that card, and not seeing it as something to fear, but as something to move into with wonder and excitement. Yeah, the darkness where you can't see well you don't know as clearly what's coming down the path. There's vulnerability in that, but there's also wonder and power, and it's where we do a lot of our growth. And a lot um, of our other senses have to come to the front. Yeah, You know, we, right. we learn to become we draw, more fully We draw human. on different resources. I like how you said we learn to become more fully human. Yeah, we draw on different resources in the dark mm-hmm. than we do in the light. Yeah, the solar... The solar half is all about clarity and intention and being able to plan. And being able to plan means believing in a consistency between the past, the present, and the future. And there's so much about what we're doing right now that is occluded and dark. And so we have to learn the skills of the dark, too, and just embrace them. 
we have faith in knights. Uh, well, yeah, that was fun. Once again, really encourage folks to read the Stephanie Wakefield articles. Um, they're very well written. She draws together everything from Blade Runner to Miami Beach to CrossFit training. <laughs> um, Nietzsche and... Five Percenters. Yeah, the Five Percenters, Hank and Appearance. They're really good. They're really good articles. Uh, and so... Yeah, happy to be able to talk about that and share share those with y'all. Um, they're not brand new. They're a couple years old, but still very much worth reading. Uh, will we be back in January, you think? We will be going on another little hiatus here to prepare the next series of podcasts, which is going to be this book that we're going to do. Also not a new text, but one that is uh, still really relevant for us and for a lot of people. Do you want to tell people what it is? What it is? I think I might have already announced this some places, but um, we are going to tackle Caliban and the Witch by Sylvia Federici. I will, I guess we'll put a picture of that up on our show notes. This is a really important text, and a lot. It's also one that people have tend to keep around on their shelves for a decade and not usually pick up, or if they do, they put it back down quickly. It's pretty dense, but it's important and it's a good read and um, it's definitely helpful to read with other people and discuss and we are hoping to be your guides through the book and whether or not you feel like reading it, we hope that you will be become familiar with the ideas and well-versed in basically the creation of capitalism and what that looked like back in Europe and on this continent and the rest of what became colonies at the same time. It's a pretty popular book coming up again recently, especially with an increasing witch and um, increasing interest in witchcraft, but we're going to have to save explaining more of what it's about until later, maybe. Yeah, except maybe just to say that we are right now in a time where we're in a time where a certain way of doing things is going through transformations and maybe mm, coming to mm-hmm. an end. And we're wondering what the next configuration of things might be. And that Caliban and the Witch is a book that talks about another time when that was happening. That's right. Um, when the feudal relations in Europe were coming to an end for various reasons. And certain powers at that time, you know, were able to get hold of what was coming apart and to build all of that together into the system that we're still kind of experiencing now. Mm-hmm. Capitalism. We're going to be uh, talking about the beginning. Yeah. Now that we're here towards the end. Mm-hmm. Now that we're here <laughs> towards the end. So uh, it's kind of on theme, you know, with what we're talking about, because... It's like, okay, we're going through a transition now. What was a really important transition from the past? And what did it look like to transition into what we're in now? So excited to do that. So get Uh, yourself a copy if you want to read along or um, if you just don't want to do that, just join us and we'll be talking about the themes in the book, which are really interesting. Yeah, you can listen to us instead of reading the book, as always. But did you say that there's maybe you can read it online, too? I think there is a digital copy. So I think Federici has put that up for people to share. So we could also link to that. Yeah, you can search um, and find it online, possibly. Or you can uh, support Autonomy Media, Radical Publisher, (laughs) still hanging in there um, by buying your own copy of 
Caliban and the Witch. Or support your local bookstore. Women, get them to order it for the you. The Body and Primitive Accumulation. Oh, right. Uh, I didn't say the subtitle. Yeah. So, not sure when we'll get the first one out about that, but it won't be right away. Look for us in 2020. 